Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Less injuries means better performance. Using technology has greatly improved our knowledge of individual biomechanics. Now we can take that information to determine where an athlete's performance is deficient and their body is vulnerable. That's exactly what this week's guest, Dr. Phil Wagner of Sports Science, is doing with force plate feedback. With nearly instantaneous feedback, you can track progress week to week and dictate training programs accordingly. The beauty? It's simple, and from all accounts, it works. This is episode 273. Power at the Nation. What is up? What is up? No, what that is, is awesome. <laughs> Power Athlete Nation. Are you ready? You sounded like the church lady from fucking SNL. Uh, yeah, that's what people want. That's what people want. Yeah. Well, isn't that per- or special? <laughs> <laughs> you mean you mean Mike Myers? No, Dana Carvey was, was church it? lady. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was Mike. No, my, Mike He's Myers co- was. Coffee talk. No, mm-hmm. was the old Jewish woman. Said, I'm a little verklept. Yeah, talk, talk amongst yourselves. Oh, coffee that was like. Talk. Yeah, Mike. that's the best. Uh, what happened to SNL, people? You're uh, listening, but this isn't SNL. This is PAR, Power Athlete Radio. Power out the nation. What is up? Yes, the premier podcast in strength and, and conditioning. conditioning. Ing, 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 ing. Ing. And remember, if you want those ing, ing, ing shirts, please send an email to Harry tell at powerathletehq.com. And you tell him, hey, I want my ing, ing, ing. That's all you need. Just drop it. It's like, the, it, think of like the ing, 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 like the baby back rib song from uh, Chili's. Remember that that theme song? I want my baby back, baby back. Baby oh, does, back, doesn't baby Fat baby. Bastard say, yeah, "I want Mike my Myers. baby, baby"? Yeah, yeah. That's like the ing 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 of podcasting, people. Ing. Uh, thank you to those who have been giving us reviews. We've got some updated Ooh. reviews, right? Um, Five stars. Uh, yeah, and then some critical ones. Uh, the, what? Here's some things people don't like: profanity, um, motherfuckers. I know, I know. Uh, and then they say that John, you talk too much. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> they say still, but here's the thing about those people. I we like our podcast, and that's all that matters. Well, but th- no, here's honestly, the problem, though. Uh, they say talk too much. It's a podcast. <laughs> it's about. Aren't talking. we supposed to be talking? Yes. I don't listen. I don't. Those two are, in my opinion, outliers. Uh, I just don't find. Well, the problem them is they're both Cali. It was C. Hinsman and then Kelly H. Um, I don't. Find, I guess maybe I'm wrong. And though for those who was gave it Dorothy that, Mantooth? for those who gave that feedback, thank you. But I just don't find that to be like adaptive feedback. I mean, did they give us a one, a two, or a three, or four? Uh, like a two and a three, maybe. So some asshole, if you're listening, well, went no, and I don't reviewed know our asked. podcast yeah. and gave us a two or a three, and their comment was that I was talking too much. <laughs> well, it was like, hey, let the guests talk every once in a while, Wellborn. But the thing is, the guests like hearing you talk, which makes... All, but I, John's a guest. Yeah, that's what they don't yeah, understand. I am the special guest that's on the podcast. That's why you're featured. You're featured. <laughs> we, that's why Tex and I don't talk as much. See, people, this is all planned. This is not post or hindsight bias or confabulation, as we learned about ages ago. But my thing about it is, here's, here's also what I think people don't understand is like we we are trying to provide a positive experience for a podcast guest we regularly get feedback like i've never been on a fucking podcast like that that was great and it's because john like your ability to engage with these people i think is is what helps make this a fun show for them and them to want to come back on rather than us like have a list of questions um you know like for our guest here today tell us about uh 
the, the you know, like a fucking Chris Farley on back to SNL. Hey, yeah, that's remember, awesome. Remember that's when awesome. Uh, Keanu, remember when you jumped the bus over the, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> you mean Denny K? Uh, no, Denny K was fucking, that's he was awesome. the OG host. He was a, he's a legend, Denny K. He is. I love Denny K. I miss him. Anyways, uh, I guess this is a another. Just keep them coming. Uh, and it, hey, listen, if you want to tell people that there's profanity, that's fine. Like, continue to. Th- there is people. We swear a lot. That's just how it works. And I don't know why we just do. Maybe we're immature. Um, there's research. No, they it, say now, whether or not people, it's credible. People, people who that swear, swear are right. more honest. Yeah, sorry. And that's what we are. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry that I'm talking. Right. And uh, in terms of getting John to stop talking, good luck. I've been here for six years trying to get him to shut up, and he just won't. Um, but you know what? It's like uh, it's like hearing an angel sing, you know. Uh, but you got to also remember, uh, for a lot of these people, um, I'm not necessarily interviewing them in terms of a podcast. Yeah, it's no, more I know. like us hanging out. Totally. Like, like the fact that Phil uh, and I went to dinner like pretty much uh, like 15 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And uh, his first job was working with Todd Rice, who was my strength coach. And like just like that stuff, it's like just like banter. So I imagine that's right. Like instead of us interviewing them in the typical podcasting manner, it's more like, hey man, you you get to drop in and listen to our conversation. And this, so this episode is a perfect example because we have on today Dr. Phil Wagner, who's the founder of Sparta Performance, who is like these guys are like are they are they the sports science like data, yeah, data collection, uh, aggregation and insight provider. And yes, like because they, they are empowering the strength coach to really. But there's no one keep else their job. There's no one else doing the, the on the the I'm, scale that they are. I'm sure there is, but within our network, yeah. But so we have our guest on, and like, listen, spoiler alert, people. Uh, Phil's a fucking cool dude, and uh, sorry, darn cool dude. And the first probably ten to fifteen minutes is John catching up with Phil and you, if you could see Phil, he's just totally engaged and had a great time on our podcast. I would be, I would be fucking shocked. I'd be darn shocked if he's like, man, that was a boring podcast. I wish I didn't do it, you know, yeah. but it's because of your ability to converse, man, your conversationalist. Well, no, I actually remember the yeah. dinner. I remember everything about it. Uh, and, uh, just the fact that that was his first experience as a strength coach is hilarious because, uh, uh Todd Rice is not for the, uh, the faint of heart and for the weak and the meek. So, so uh, the fact that he's gone on over these last, you know, that was in probably 2002, 2003, uh, has gone on and done what he's done is phenomenal. And I'm stoked to collect, uh, connect with him. And I'm really jazzed up for this one. Yeah, man. And so I guess for our listeners, don't let that, if you wanted to let, like, go ahead, let us know that you don't like the profanity. That's fine. Like people who are looking at those reviews are entitled to read that. I, if you're looking for, uh, John, again, like it's just these are things that aren't necessarily going to change if you but we appreciate the feedback and thanks for taking the time to everybody who's given us some feedback and please keep doing it. Uh, be honest, be brutal. Other than that, if you haven't got your symposium tickets yet, do it, do it. Events.powerathletehq.com. Hurry up because we're running thin on those practical sessions. Here's what's going on at the ranch at the Power Athlete Symposium. Here is what you can be guaranteed we have four practical segments at Power Athlete HQ Ranch on Saturday. Segments one is a mystery. Two <laughs> is a mystery. Three is a mystery. But the fourth segment will be a squat clinic led by Jean Wellborn. Fe- CEO. Featuring 
John Wilbur. <laughs> led by Paul Actually, Rathke, yeah, featuring John be, Yeah, it'll be led by Tex, but featuring John But Wilbur. we're going to have the whole, we're going to have a handful of coaches there ready to work on squats and help improve squats, introduce you to maybe new squatting formats. Maybe we throw in some iso-elevated type stuff yeah. to tinker with leading up to some heavy squats led by John. So that's part of our practical. And leading up to that, we're going to have two aces. Maybe we'll announce this later. Two aces that are going to be working on the prep, getting you ready to squat, and then do some type of athletic type stuff as well. So get your tickets, events.powerathletehq.com, people. But now let's get talking with Dr. Phil Wagner, again, founder of Sparta Performance out in Silicon Valley, people. Phil, for our <laughs> listeners, let's get it. What's your background, man? It sounds like obviously you and John have some history, right? You're, yep. you're in this iron game. Give us a background. Let our listeners know what's up, where you're from, what are your origins, what brought you, what brought you to this point? What, what's the journey? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, my journey, I think, began like a lot of coaches as an athlete. Um, high school, college football player was injured just a ton and was really kind of confused because every time I went through some sort of rehab, you know, a different injury would occur or a similar one would reoccur. So, you know, really wanted to get into coaching because I figured I didn't want anybody else to have that kind of experience. So started coaching at Cal. Um, and that's where John and I have a connection with Todd Rice and, and went on to coach at Penn and UCLA, some other places overseas. And, you know, was, was pretty shocked um, the level of guesswork that went on, um, particularly when it came to um, health and preventing injuries or at least reducing them. So that way you could perform better, um, and longer. And so I went to medical school and, and ultimately tried to take that practical approach of coaching with more of the scientific data side that's used a lot in medicine. Nice. And where are you, where are you at now? Like what, what's your, what's your, so, yeah. So about, uh, about six years ago, founded a, a, a place called Sparta, and it kind of began and we founded it here in the Menlo Park. So literally about 10 yards from Facebook's headquarters. And yeah. Um, and so, you know, began as a training facility. We were going to train people that wanted to get better athletes that we we're going to use a lot of technology and, and being where we are in the Silicon Valley started talking with people and they said, you know, you can help thousands and thousands more people if this was a software, um, which I have no had no idea what a software company does, how to sell it, how to market it, how to build it. But here, like in Silicon Valley, half the people are code for a living, right? So right. we started working with some of these people to um, develop this software. And it, it launched about four years ago, and it's been a great kind of growth for us. We still have the training facility, um, still have our roots there, but the, the business has really grown into a, a data technology company wow. that serves all kinds, high schools, pros, Military, special forces, yeah, uh, whole, yeah. whole gamut. You know, ironically, uh, Tex didn't um, Jim Steele? Isn't this the sport? Yeah, this is. Yes. Uh, yeah, yep. uh, Jim Steele is a huge fan, and uh, yeah. uh, you know, Jim and I are friends, and Tex and I have gone out there, and you know, every time we're in Philly, you know, us being a Philly, me being a Philly guy, uh, yeah. uh, we'd always swing and see Jim, and um, he took us through his whole facility, and man, he could not uh, say enough good stuff about this. And that was really the first time I'd, I'd really ever heard about it. I mean, um, yeah. as you know, like from my background, yeah. uh, I mean, I would like to say our background or our background, cause we were both raised yeah. as battered children, you know, via Todd Rice. <laughs> so we got that connection, but, uh, you know, that kind of, you know, uh, really, um, a lot of the technology was skewed, 
you know, like yep. that, that the matrix for performance was, Hey, you know, like what are the numbers, how, you know, you know, really just this, you know, training this and, um, you know, we didn't really use any tech and it was, you know, and then I went to athletes performance and, uh, you know, train with Verstegen and those guys and, um, actually thought a lot of the stuff was fucking bullshit and, uh, got yep. into it with those guys constantly. And I'm like, yo man, you're going to bring in a dude here who's going to go training camp in a couple of weeks. And you spent two weeks trying to activate his core. I'm like, at the end of the day, man, people need to kind of, you know, be able to, to drop these things in, in a concurrent training cycle so that yep. they can start, you know, moving towards it. I'm like, you got a guy that you're, you know, trying to activate his core for two weeks and a week later, he's going to be on the football field and you haven't fucking lifted a single weight. Right. And so trying to put this together, but yeah, when, um, uh, when we went out and we're working with Jim Steele, man, he was saying his ability to foresee injury before it, it happened with the Sparta uh, software was just, he's like, I've never seen anything like it. So, I mean, that's when we yeah. kind of jumped I mean, into that's, it. Yeah. And that's ultimately why it was set up. I mean, we want to validate strength training, um, real strength training, and we want to validate the people that are putting it out there like Jim, right? Because, you know, where it doesn't work, it's, it measures force, right? Force applied in the ground. So if you're doing things, you know, that are not gravity intensive, you know, it's just not really going to improve. And I think one of the great pieces for Jim was he was finally able to have the kind of information for what he'd been doing all along that what I'm doing is right. Look at all these injuries I prevented. Look at the way I'm training. You know, I, I can remember one time I called him up. I said, what's going on with your volleyball team? They made all these huge jumps in force. He goes, you know what I did? I took them from three days a week training down to two. <laughs> that's all I did. And he's like, I found it worked better on the force. So that's what we started doing. You so, know, he, he, you know, yeah, it's perfect. He, yeah. He, he does something too. It's a little bit different. Uh, you know, he's big into the MMA stuff. And yep. I know he's got like bags and he was saying, he's like, uh, the, you know, just teaching these kids on how to like accelerate their, you know, their limbs and move, you know, in these kind of different modalities that are, uh, you know, similar force production, but not, Absolutely. uh, you know, identical patterns to what they use. And he's yep. like, man, like, you know, they, yeah, I remember he, him telling us like their volleyball and soccer girls, they cut back their, their weights and sort of go into more, you know, kind of striking stuff. And he's like, everybody flew through the roof. So I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a sharp fucker, man. I'm stoked to count him as a, as a friend. Yeah. I think educationally he has the ability to think really abstract, you know, because when most people think about force, it's like, well, how much weight are you lifting? Right. How many reps did you do? Which certainly huge stimulus for force, but not the only one, right. Martial right. arts, sprinting, all these types of different movements, you know, provide a, a stimulus for force production as well. So explain, yeah. explain to our listeners how you're collecting the data uh, or maybe how the origins of it or what you're doing now and how did it start? You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting because Tex and I got to just fuck around with a little bit of force played over at UT a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I guess we tested extremely stiff in terms of our ability. You know, we're stiff and high power output and then dampening wasn't like our highest score. Right. But right. that's how we train. And we're like, well, yeah, yep. I guess that makes sense. You know. And then our buddy there explained some of the different curves on the force plate uh, yep. and how it can be indicative of what type of athlete you're recruiting, right? What, what the training should be in season, off season. Some of these insights, not necessarily rules, but insights to how you can pull some levers in the training. Yeah, it's a great term, insights, not rules. I think uh, approaching it from a strength coach angle, I didn't want to look at it like, okay, all these people are broken, Right. So we got to fix activation. We got to fix all these different things. It was more like, okay, we're not changing anybody. All we're going to do is boost up their weakness so they can continue to do what they do well. 
And so in your guys' example, if you guys are both high on strength and power, but a little bit lower on dampening, we don't want to turn you into like a dampening, you know, expert, right? We just want to make sure that dampening doesn't hinder your ability to train as frequently and as hard as you want. So what's the right things to assign in place for that? And so in order to do that, the next thing we had to figure out was how do we do something really quick, right? That takes, you know, 60, 90 seconds. So you can do it every week just as a quick measure, a quick scan. And that's where the force plate came in uh, because the force plate generally measures about a thousand Hertz, which means every second you're getting a thousand points, three different directions and, and around those axes as well. Um, so all that information's coming in. Force plate's been around for decades. I think what's different is now the technology, the software is so high powered that it can take all that data and actually use it, right? right? So it siphons it all up into different parts of force production, different directions. And now you can be much more insightful of, okay, I just got on this force plate. Here's where my force is good. Here's where it's not. This is what I need. You know, so it's much more, yeah, methodical. Yeah. And then is that, I guess, how is, is the force plate the, the foundation of the testing at Sparta? Yeah, I think the force plate is um, the foundation just because, you know, there's a lot of things out there that are, you know, one or two steps removed, right? You know, we talked about one rep maxes before. I was a strength coach at UCLA. So when you get to be a senior, you're not going to beat your max. So then we switch it to rep test for maxing, right? Mm -hmm. We had guys cleaning 600 pounds because they're smart enough to realize if I do 135, 25 times or 30 times, then I can actually clean 600 pounds according to this formula, right? So like, you <laughs> yeah, know, it's funny. It's funny how that works. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's a lot, I think most of the performance testing out there, there's ways around it and, and, and athletes or lifters are smart enough to find those ways around it so how do we find something that's like non-negotiable right right and gravity is pretty non-negotiable um and that's uh, just force right i don't know and i so, mean uh texas is a flat earther and doesn't really believe in gravity <laughs> so. yeah yeah it's actually acceleration and inertia i believe is that correct yeah okay times force divided by two and double it yep yeah, yeah. eight <laughs> crates lots of egg crates that's right yeah so i think that's where it kind of all started is looking at the force plate as a way to to measure you know what's nobody's hopefully going to argue with force production as a, as a metric. And then one of the things that make athletes great is how they choose to produce that over a certain time, you know, because quickness isn't the goal of some of them, right. You know, sometimes you want long graceful, like a pitcher. And sometimes you want um, really just slow and strong. A lot of times, you know, like catchers or linemen, you know, and so there's all different combinations and, and no one is better than another. And so everybody shouldn't be necessarily chasing the same goal as well. You know, it's a pattern. We get, I get asked all the time by different um, people because we work with pro teams and special forces, who's the best we have? And my response is immediate. You know, what's the best book? You know, what's the best painting, right? Because you can't really say, okay, he's the best athlete, right? Because well, they're all so different. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but the each individual person has an individual talent or more importantly, an individual like uh, need. And then I think being able to assess like, Hey, this is what you're doing and this is how you increase. And then being able to say, all right, Hey, if we can increase these, when you go out and you do something, you know, in the real world, you know, like when you step off and you get a sprint or you run, you know, is yep. it reducing? And um, really what Jim was saying, he's like, you know, it doesn't necessarily, 
uh, alter how our kids are playing. I just, it's dramatically reduced injuries, uh-huh. which uh, he's like, um, and the, the hilarious part and what, what I love about uh, Jim Steele is he's like, I don't really know why, how it works. <laughs> he's like, I just know that it does work. And that when I do what it says, we have less injuries. And I was like, yeah. fucking, that is, uh, that's probably the smartest human being on the planet. Like, I don't have to understand everything. I just understand that, that when this says this, I need to do this. And then everything works out. Yes. So, Phil, yes. let's get into the three, the three markers, I guess. Luke and I experienced the visual. Could you paint the graph that yeah. the jump mat gives, yeah. the, gives the coach and then <clears throat> what each of those bars represents? Yeah, so, um, so we have a few different um, screens we use or tests we use. One is the jump. And out of the jump is we found that three variables explain – 97% of your vertical jump. Um, and those three are, one is your eccentric rate of force, right? So how well you initiate force. And that's basically high in individuals that squat for a living, catchers, linemen, for example. Then the next part of the force production curve that's taken out is your concentric rate of force. So when you're jumping, if you're in that squat position, it's how quickly you come out to explode upwards. And we see that high mostly in basketball, soccer, individuals that really have a great first step quickness, that type of thing. The last variable is probably the hardest one for people to understand, and that's your impulse. And that's the multiplication of force and time. So producing force over a long period of time. Now we call that drive. That's really high in most athletes that control their own tempo. So everybody goes when they go. Um, so there's no need to be reactive. Pitchers, you know, it's probably a reason they need special hats for comebackers, right? Like they can't react too well. So you got pitchers, you got golfers, long snappers, we see that high end. So individuals that control their own tempo. Um, so each of them, and everybody has, there's variations within those. There's running quarterbacks versus pocket passers, right? So there's all different kinds of signatures. And we even to this point, NFL teams will even use it to see which guys fit in their system. Are they more of a bump, you know, roll up and bump in coverage, or are they playing off the ball? So they want more of a sprinter versus somebody that's more of a strength type defensive back. So there's, it's really, I, I think, exposes the appreciation of not only different people, but different skill sets within what they pursue. Yeah, I got my Sparta score right here. Tex, I believe you did beat me on this. I have a <laughs> 74 Tex ranked to 79 right before me. Disclaimer, it was the Monday after Ben and Mare's wedding, so it was a long weekend. I bet if I were to retest, I'd smash you. But I Also, <laughs> disclaimer, we are D3 athletes. No, 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 no. <laughs> I am a high school athlete. I have resided to my fact that I'm a very successful high school caliber athlete. Like, that's about all I could compete in. Is that what the uh, Sparta thing spit out? It said, yeah. uh, good high school athlete. <laughs> <laughs> it, like, all, all of a sudden, it, it like, like a, <laughs> like Actually, a, yeah, like a little so. bubble pops up. It's like, oh, you were probably a decent high school yeah. athlete when you so, were 17 years old. My load is 80, my explode is 75, and my drive is 24. Yeah, so those numbers, right, that's the other piece, right, is in force plates, generally you get back, let's say 9,800 newtons per second, you know, 25 newtons per second per kilogram. And you're like, that's great. What does this mean? <laughs> so the next piece was like, okay, how do we get all this data in the software 
create this database by, you know, age, gender, you know, activity, injury history, and assign it like a bell curve where 50 is dead center. Yeah. And every 10 points is a full standard devi deviation away. So your load was 80. That means you are three standard deviations above, you know, the male college athlete. I think it we oh yeah he tested I was gonna say it was the female basketball team so yeah oh you <laughs> tested no, the female no one? no we he tested us as male is here <laughs> so right but on the flip side that twenty four means you know on the drive that you're three standard deviations below right. the average right so we see that type of curve so wait we tend to actually see a lot of ACLs and foot injuries like in mm -hmm. Liz Frank oh wow um, because. It's descending downwards. So while you create a lot of force, you don't dissipate it. So there's no bending going on. There's twisting. Yeah. Yeah, the hinge joints, basically, um, when there's any sort of uh, absorption of force going on, rather than bending, those hinge joints are forced to twist. Mm -hmm. And then twisting is what causes a lot of those injuries in the foot or the uh, in the knee. Yeah, foot, knee, ankle, hip, I guess, right? So how do you do uh, Well, I guess it'd be a hinge, right? Foot or knee. Well, then, uh, right. so then how do you, prov I mean, so he's got, uh, like, good, uh, like, he can generate force, right, mm -hmm. going up. It sounds like. Um, well, it's actually, if, and this is how it was explained to me, Phil, right? So I can load effectively, and then my amortization or turnaround is effective, but as I get turnaround, I can't. I'm ineffective at continually producing force. Uh, is that is that right, Phil? Or that's absolutely right. Okay. Yeah, you don't fully extend, right? So it's mm -hmm. what you said is right. Um, and so as a result, all the while this is being done, we're also collecting data at our training facility as well as, as, well as other organizations, you know, what they're doing about it. Uh -huh. And but because everybody can do their own thing, right, which is great, that means we're getting all these different ways to approach things and the data science and machine learning runs, okay, this helps that, but not this. You know, a good example, the Rockies found, you know what? Our Dominican pitchers need totally different programs than our Caucasian guys. Wow. Right? And so as a result, we have to approach elbow wrists differently with them. Wow. Well, the, uh, the one that kind of threw me for a loop is um, I would think that the, Luke's per, uh, the way Luke's set up is actually probably more beneficial for, like, let's say a linebacker who wants to be big first step, big explosion, and then doesn't want to, like, fucking linger onto the hit, that kind of, like, hit and keep moving kind of mentality, which, as I'm thinking about it, like, that ability to sustain that, I mean, I probably isn't as beneficial in, like, a, in like a power kind of a football Directionally, situation. I think directionally that curve is representative of that. It's just that 24 is too low, right? So if we brought the 24 yeah. up to 50, oh, then... Yeah, then it'd be more proportional. Yeah, but then you, you have that curve that would fit that type of athlete. So how to... That's right. So is... I mean, and then is it something where uh, Sparta actually puts, uh, like, a training program or kind of offers a training program that would help Luke bring up his deficiency? Yeah, it automatically assigns what we found from the community to be the best um, exercise to use. But as you guys know, like there's a lot of philosophical differences, right, among strength coaches, which is okay. And so a lot of times those defaults will be shifted somewhat and say, okay, I don't want to do this. I'm going to do this instead. What, was, that's uh, where, yeah. what was yours? What was the exercises for uh, being able to fix that deficiency? Oh, you know, we didn't look into it, but our buddy uh, Zillner was basically he's he then we did some uh, hopping drills and plyo drills. He's like, see, I, I can see the stiffness in your landing. He's like, I think to yep. start with just some of this stuff, I would focus more on uh, 
like softening the land and turnaround and just being deliberately uh, controlled. I don't want to say slow, right? And but utilizing. like reducing foot contact time on like uh, no, uh, uh, the other way is like so. I I tended to on my hops just very. I'd be very short in my hip. In my hip action, right? Pop, pop, pop. But he's like, look, sit down into it and learn to like start to learn how to sit and catch. So we would instead of multiple response, we were doing single mm. singles, right? Catch, and then yep. go catch, and just uh, be a little more deliberate in using more range of motion rather than a short dip drive mm. like a push press. Interesting. Cool. So, it's helpful sometimes to think the opposite, right? If you think like a a tall women's volleyball player would be the opposite, right? They're think about how they load for the set, right? It's this right. long drawn out absorbed absorption, right? Both going up as well as coming down. Right. Right. And you'd be the antithesis of that. And so back to Steele's point about training force production in the area they don't see in their sport, that's where it becomes helpful. So broad jump is actually the number two exercise we found to boost drive, which is that impulse you were low in. The number one is an elevated split squat. Huh. Um, we think that's because two reasons. It gets into your glutes to help prolong the extension. But the other thing is it's also stretching out that anterior capsule, anterior chain of the leg that's up. Yeah. So you're almost getting the two for one. That's yeah. a theory yeah. as to why it is. But yeah, um, it could be, right? But, yeah. and, but, you, when but then you, going back to Jim Steele is like, well, you, it's working. Well, whenever, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Whenever you guys do any like Bulgarian split squats or anything, you always put the pad real low. Yeah, and I'm always we like we could a, stretch it probably. Yeah, I always like it real high because I feel like I can get more stretch in my hip flexor. Mm-hmm. And I, well, even with that that low, I'm feeling pretty stretchy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like that's as high as I can. So I feel like yeah. it could be a, a mixture of like you know, did I guess steal from K Star the being desk bound right? I had five years yeah. in corporate, and we do sit probably a little too much uh, prior to this. We now have standing desks and a little more deliberate with not being in that seated position. Um. Have have you seen people um, since the admin, I think, with CrossFit and like the K-Star where like now we've seen people that are too flexible, like I'm seeing this kind of like deal where we would go teach seminars and uh, they were like, what do you think? I'm like, I think you fucking need to stop stretching. Um, I've never 100%. in my life seen people that are so, uh, what's the term, like mobile. Oh, hypermobile, hypermobile. Uh, like yeah. we do, like uh, like these guys, like people would show up to our seminar and they would be stretching and this, and we get in there and, and and I was like, dude, you can't maintain any task specific tension under load, but like it it was this uh, weird thing where like when we originally started teaching the seminars in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, people were a little tight, and then like eleven, and Kelly's book came out, and everybody wanted to be a supple leopard. And all of a sudden, man, like uh, people couldn't maintain any type of tension at the bottom of a squat when they pulled. And uh, it just looked awful. Like they were just um, really kind of just hyper flexing in like their backs. And I would always ask them, like, what do you guys been doing? Oh, well, you know, I do this and this and I stretch. And I'm like, you're stretching three times a day. You need to stop fucking stretching and you need to become a yep. little tighter. And uh, I would always tell them the story of um, uh, Deion Sanders. You know, when Dion showed up, he could barely like, you know, he was like four four to six inches from touching his toes. And he goes out and runs like what, like a four, three, nine. And they spent the whole year next year stretching Dion. He finally touches his toes and runs like a four, four. Uh, four yep. and uh, they were like, ooh. So he stopped stretching Stop and he stretching, came back yeah. and ran like a four three and change. Mm-hmm. And uh, yep. you know, you like some of those guys, like you need. And uh, Cal Dietz and I talked about this, like uh, tension in the muscle bellies. Um, mm. You know, not only you know, while it might not be advantageous for you know injuries, but like that ability to generate force. There's some you know genetic stuff that you can kind of bring into it, but you can overstretch too. Yeah, I, <clears throat> we have seen that quite a bit. Um, 
you know, certainly in some cases, the sport itself, um, if they are playing a sport, volleyball, hypermobile, they get that nice passing platform, pitchers, you know, to get that layback. Um, but I think, yeah, in the CrossFit circles and in general, there's a, uh, I think a perception that you can never have enough flexibility, right? And that's not true, right? Because, you know, it's like a continuum, right? If flexibility or mobility is on one end and stability is on the other, you know, whatever you move towards is going to take away from that other point. And that's, to me, where data truly becomes helpful. And it's not used enough in that way. Um, it's, it's, it should be used on too far um, in that direction. Do I need to pull back? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you are training right, you're eventually just going to want to stay in more of a band in that middle and fluctuate either way. And so I think, yeah, having a, a threshold based on the community at large is really key to make some of those decisions of, am I too flexible or not? Yeah. The, um, when I was in Newport beach, we ended up trading time. Like at the gym, we had these yeah, yoga people come in. They did like a Shanti, uh, yoga. And so they traded and we went in and did their yoga stuff. They'd come in and lift and, you know, these guys are super flexible. I mean, when, I mean, dude, the amount of stuff that they could do in the yoga environment was great. The minute we put a bar on their back or put them under any load, not a single one of them had any usable range of motion. Right. And it was the craziest thing. I'm like, I just watched you guys do, you know, some things that like would make Gumby uncomfortable. And yet, uh, you know, there's a, you know, 85 pound, 95 pounds on your back and you can't even squat like anywhere near parallel. And it looks like a dog shitting a razor blade. And it was just amazing. And the, the, the interesting part is, uh, some of their instructors were like, um, what do you think? I'm like, I don't think you should fucking do any more of this yoga. I'm like, I think the yoga is beneficial, but I think you've gone too far this way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's really, I'm telling you, I think this is going to be a huge problem. And so, uh, two other people ended up quitting the yoga and coming lifting weights. And then they got mad and our kind of relationship kind of blew up. But it was just a really weird um, incidence where I'm like, if you can take, you know, pretty good athletes that move, lift weights, and they want to do yoga one day a week and it adds something to them, I think it works well. But its problem is that everybody's in this idea that if one's good, ten's better. And if I do this stuff every single day, it's going to help me in some way. And when they ask me, I'm like, well, if flexibility is what your limiting factor is, then adding flexibility will help you. The problem is if flexibility is not your limiting factor and you just go stretch – uh, you know, passive range of motion versus what I call, you know, lifting weights, which is active range of motion stretching. Right. Can you get in these positions and maintain posture and position under load? You know, because I, I don't know any sport that doesn't involve some form of load. Um, you know, at least any of the sports I played were always either, you know, my force or me absorbing force or using force, right. or however it goes. And just if I can't maintain tension and strength and I'm not flex- or I'm, and I'm, uh, you know, not able to move. And it's just like it was this constant fist fight within it. And it's like, man, like we just yeah, we, we just run, really run into people that I'm like, dude, you're just way too flexible, man. Just stop stretching. Yeah, it's such a huge part. Any any sport is going to involve some sort of force production, just a matter of which direction and how quickly it's occurring in. But there's some there's some pattern if you're playing if you're not playing water polo, um, you know, then everything involves some sort of interaction in a different direction. Do you, do you see is, injuries uh, that are kind of like like you tagged an ACL on a Liz Frank? Do you see injuries that kind of like uh, when you like they tag together almost like that? Like if this person fits within this profile, then like these three injuries are things that they see. Yeah, I think the hinge joint one is is probably the the best example that Liz Frank ACL. Um, and you know, I think the best example if we use linemen, right, is they tend to be excessively high in load. Their job requires it. They weigh a lot. 
they squat what few hundred times every practice getting into their stance and then you go in the weight room and you know you're going to squat some more right so you've got a big heavy guy who's great naturally at being eccentric then he squats for practice and then he squats only in the weight room you know that's when we start seeing that gross imbalance of yeah, what's what's happening with a lot of these ACLs, Liz Franks? Ironically, I had an ACL and a mild Liz Frank. Yeah, so I think so. it's these are, and I and I think then factor in other things like the turfs, right, and and other issues which which only I think enhance kind of that exposure. Yeah, no, uh, the the Liz Frank came actually. Um, I got uh, I was blocking and the running back landed on the back of my foot when I was up and drove yeah. my like drove my foot into the ground. And, yeah. uh, it was like, you know, it wasn't torn, but, uh, it was like, I was like, Oh, I got a Liz Frank. Did they twist? They're like, no, you got your foot jammed in by some dude landing on the back of your heel. And they yeah. just basically shot it up for the season and numb my foot. And, and then the next year it healed up. I was fine. So yeah. that one sucked. I'd like to get in some of those best practices. Cause you have coaches all over who are applying, applying this tool and then using their programs. What have you found for best practices for stability? Right. There is a, a flash of mobility going out there. But what can we start to do to empower coaches out there to increase stability, to prevent injuries and empower performance? Yeah. So stability is, um, you know, the best way we found at least it, it all, I guess, defining stability is the first place to start. Um, you know, we define stability basically as that amortization period of change in direction. Right. How stable are you to change direction vertically, horizontally, et cetera. Um, the movement itself might be static, but you know, when you are changing direction, even on a jump, there is an instantaneous point where you are static. Um, the things we've actually found to be the most effective um, are you know, things that are actually um, require and really target bracing more than your lower body um, or their, your upper body. A great example is a, a rack pull for a deadlift. Um, it's one of the best ones we've seen it's not as much legs, right? Because you're starting an elevated position. Um, and, you know, really that bracing part to bring something up from a static position, uh, we've seen the largest increases in what we call explode, that concentric rate of force. Uh, the other piece we've seen are, are carries. Um, again, same idea, like you've got to stabilize with an added load, one hand versus the other, or suitcase deadlifts. So these offset type of loading parameters have been, um, you know, a big piece. The other piece, which is interesting, is is clean. And there's there's at least some I've seen uh, this debate around, do you catch a clean or not? You know, and I don't know, John, if it's the Todd Rice uh, Stockholm Syndrome <laughs> on me. But uh, I, uh, I can't imagine not catching a clean. Um, and we well, believe the clean has a big effect on explode because not so much because of the pull, but the bracing that's required yeah. on the catch. You know and what? Uh, that's I, the best part about cleaning. Yeah. I got into a huge internet fist fight with some fucking asshole uh, over this, <laughs> where I felt uh, he thought that uh, Olympic lifting was a waste of time for field sport athletes. And my comment was basically, you know, via Todd Rice. And I remember him telling me, uh, that when you pull the bar, your ability to catch the bar, absorb the load, maintain posture and position, you know, stabilize and then drive against the load is probably the single greatest teaching tool for 100%. an offensive lineman. And so I yep. went through this whole thing about it. And the guy was like, no, that doesn't happen. 
And like, I fucking hate to have to like, uh, um, uh, fucking trump card these dipshits all the time. But I'm like, hey, motherfucker. I don't uh, think you hate to, John. No, I really don't because I shouldn't. <laughs> I shouldn't have to trump card people. But I'm like, and I even asked the guy. I'm like, um, did you play college football? No. So you played high school football. Yeah. Well, dude, uh, not only did I play high school football, but I played fucking college football (laughs) and I played for a fucking decade in the NFL. And I just wasn't a dude holding the clipboard. I did the fucking job and was one of the best to do my job. I think I know a little something about training for this thing. And where did I, and I didn't even come up with this. I learned this, uh, from, uh, from my strength coach who was in terms of, I would say NCAA collegiate strength conditioning. There's probably nobody who's more snatch clean and jerk only focused than Todd Rice. I mean, I I, I, yeah, I mean, as far yeah. as you can go. And, yeah. uh, and I, I, I wrote this whole thing and the guy was so fucking quick, quick to dismiss it because he just doesn't have a, a you know, people fail at the margin of experience. He was, and yeah. it's, um, the, the, that fucking dipshit from, um, uh, fuck. I can't remember. He was the one that West side guy's got that real shitty, uh, nutrition supplement where he's making his garage. Um, I'll think of his name. He's a fucking. And this idiot. is the guy you were jamming up. Well, no, or he was he, jamming you. Up? Well, no, he gets on Facebook and he tries to ask these questions because he wants to try to like uh, you know have people like you know well this is what I think and then he just fucking wants to curb stomp everybody to try to prove he's smart because he's fucking yep. probably got a you know fucking one inch penis and a fucking brain to match. And uh, I saw it come up and I and somebody tagged me and I, yeah. I wrote I thought a very nice response and the guy was just fucking like no I'm like listen here motherfucker like not only yep. uh, you know like. If the day that you can't see somebody else, like, I mean, there, there's things I don't agree with, but I always see your, you know, hey, like, I can understand at least your perspective. It's called uh, empathy. Like, I can yeah. empathize. I can hear. I can put myself in your position. If you can't do that, then you fucking need to just go away. But um, I just remember Todd Rice talking about that. He's like, you know, until you get to a point where something is dynamic, you know, to where you're going to be able to absorb that load catch yep. that load, absorb, maintain, and then drive against it. He's like, that is probably the greatest, uh, you know, tool that I can give for, uh, an offensive lineman in playing. And it's part of the reason, you know, I snatched, or I, sorry, I cleaned 172 and a half and I snatched 130 and, yep. uh, those were pretty good numbers. And, yep. um, you know, and, uh, I'll tell you this, I mean, dude, it, it, you know, my vertical jump went up. I only front squatted. I remember he wouldn't let me yep. back squat. I can only front squat. And, um, you know, didn't want me to bench. So I used to have to go down to the RFC, uh, which was the, the student rec center. We'd go down there and bench because he wouldn't let us bench in the weight room, you yep. know, a bunch of shit like that. But no, I mean, there was, um, uh, just having, you know, and then all, all you know, seeing a yeah, lot of the I sprint think, and stuff yeah, was great. I think that alternating. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, uh, it, particularly because the preceding part to the catch is so relaxed to get that bar to turn over. Right. So if you can pair up that relaxation with the absorption of contact, particularly in a scalable way, too, because, you know, with the med ball, for example, there's some good things there, but it's not so much scalable like an Olympic lift would be in terms of weights and going up very slow increments. So I think that's the reason why. And I, I actually think that data will continue to grow to support clean to be the number one way for explode because it does combine that bracing in a much more dynamic pattern. Well, which is why we like the med balls, but uh, I like yep. the med balls for conditioning, which I yep. don't like the clean and the Olympic movements for conditioning, which is what the CrossFit uses. Yeah. Because what it ends up doing, it ends up bastardizing the movement. And the reason that I'm using it in terms of generating force in this turns into this like long duration deal. So yep. for us, I mean, we do a lot of the conditioning and a lot of those movements with like, let's say a med ball, like the Charlie Francis Fantastic. GPP med ball yep. stuff. Dumbbell. Yeah. And dumbbells and, yep. and things. But like, I really <laughs> like the high rep Olympic lifting stuff, um, it, just a little piece of me dies. 
Um, and you know, like, like <laughs> yeah. we'll do it like, and, and I, f- I find ways to program it into our stuff where I'm like, Hey, I want you to hit like, you know, three reps and then move to something else, which we did those triplets and couplets with, with Todd, where it was like, yeah. Hey, I want you to do a cluster of like three reps and then you're going to move to something else and then do some plyos. So, I mean, when I saw the CrossFit, I was like, I kind of know what they're doing. They're just yep. not doing it right. So let me show you how we would do this. And then, you know, yeah. we ended up having fucking massive influence. And if you look at the CrossFit stuff today, it looks more similar to the stuff that we were programming 10 years ago and the type of training that we were doing yeah. uh, than what they were doing 10 years ago. So I'm glad to see it moving in that direction. Phil, you ever see, uh, is there a future of throwing some sort of force plate under an athlete doing an Olympic lift and then, you know, a clean and starting to evaluate the data that way? Or like loaded yeah, jumps? I think, yeah, I think there is eventually. I think there's probably two challenges right now. One is the cost of the force plate, right? Um, so, you know, that's one area. We we have partnered with um, our investors are the guys that design the Android phone out here. Oh, um, so, yeah, we just took their funding last year. And so they're really helping us with a lot of these hardware cost issues um, um, just because they're used to it from um, mass producing phones and things. Um, so the cost is one issue. The other, the other challenge, which, you know, that's, that it's a little bit more, I guess the, the purest in me of, you know, I just, it just me and the iron and, you know, nothing else, no bands, no, no wearable. It's just, you know, um, the best data is already there. There's right. how much weights on the bar and you're trying to move more of it than you did last time. Right. Um, Imagine that. And you have this longitudinal five year curve that is showing an upward (laughs) trajectory in like, you know, and sometimes the VBT stuff, the velocity stuff kind of confuses me because we're over complicating shit of like, okay, the goal of strength training is to get stronger. Strength is defined as the ability to produce force. Like, you know, so sometimes it's a lot simpler than <laughs> but, we think. And the other side of that is, is again, being an Olympic lifting background, the goal is not to move the bar as fast as possible. Yeah. The goal is to move the most weight and catch it in a certain position, uh, which if may or may not have a higher speed. If you're doing the Bulgarian bullfrog, bullfrog opposed from the Russian two changing, uh, you remember the slow to the fast, which we had yep. to constantly hear from Todd Rice of the, uh, yep. you know, the, the Bulgarians used to just grip and rip it versus the Russians that did the slow to the fast. The, what was the yep. two speed? Yeah. Um, I think personally, uh, with the velocity based training, um, I like it for the barbell lifts, like squat, press, clean those, because uh, it allows me to kind of train them similar to the Olympic movements, where with the Olympic movements, what I liked about the snatch and the clean is either you get it or you don't. It's like jumping yeah. up on a box. Especially the power yeah. variation, Yeah, right? it's like, and, yep. and, and, and I'll tell you this, um, I like the power variations better because one, it's a longer pull, and two, yep. uh, I don't have to see all these people miss fucking hip extension and never get to triple extension. Yep. And I remember, I, I remember years ago, uh, I remember Todd talking about that. He's like, he's like the, you know, uh, the people that don't finish their polls. He's like, we just have them do power variations. Cause you know what? You yep. never don't, you never not finish your pull on a power variation. Absolutely. And that's why I, I went to programming it. Cause I got so tired of watching these people fucking never get on their toes, just kind of yep. like pull and then try to fucking out athlete the bar. Yeah, it's really the intent, right? It's like, okay, why are you using VBT or why are you using movements? Because, yeah, through the power example, like, yeah, if you're working on hip extension, you know, that's that's the perfect opportunity to do that. You take out all the things somebody may be good at. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, we, so I think, you know, yeah. We With the wearable the side, 
like uh, yeah. the wearables, uh, we used the Tendo, and the Tendo was super interesting for us when we were doing back squats because it allowed us to kind of find the perfect foot position and the perfect kind of angle and the force for us to be able to really focus on the speed on the accentuation phase, like that transitional, you know, mm -hmm. how do I get, you know, um, well, not the accentuation, um, yeah, the amortization. Yeah, the amortization between eccentric yeah. and concentric. So the Tendo yeah. allowed us to figure out what the most advantageous position for us was, which yeah. is that toes forward, knee almost equal with the toe. And then as yeah. somebody goes down, basically driving back into it opposed from shooting forward. So it just yeah. kind of helped us in that way. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think where that's where most, uh, at least we see strength training um, programs tend to struggle is the intents not defined first. It's like we'll get the exercise and we'll get all these exercises because they're good as opposed to what are we trying to do, work from the intent, then go forward. I think from the wearable side to some, I guess, up the answer is when, when I think the best technology is invisible, right? And so when we can get the force plates and the system to a place where it doesn't affect the approach, of individuals to um, maximal effort, then yes. So it's a matter of time, just whether it's two years or five. Hey, uh, you're probably about the only person I can ask on this. Um, how come uh, in our programming we did with, uh, with Todd Rice, why was everything so bilateral? Like why, I mean, I never remember really ever doing anything unilateral other than we would, you know, mix up the splits on the, on the snap, on the, I mean, on the jerks. Jerks. But yeah, yeah, when we went down and did all of our plyos, you know, we did a lot of the single leg hops and a lot of the plyos were single, you know, kind of single, uh, you know, unilateral type plyos. But I don't ever remember doing uh, split squats or really doing any one arm lunges, lunges any type of that. Everything was right. just bilateral. And it just always, as we progressed in my programming, um, as I got into the NFL and got longer on, um, basically being able to do split squats, lunges and step ups became uh, almost more like by basically getting stronger and being able to master those movements, everything else, uh, yeah, everything would like my squat went up, everything got easier. If I just squatted, uh, my squat went up, but didn't go up as much as the other things. And I still couldn't do those. And so well, we've I, had the same experience, you know, because people that are very bilaterally oriented, like, you know, see split squat or lunge as like, um, you know, the devil. Right. But what's interesting is when they do that, First off, you can lunge and split squat as heavy as you want. You know, there's a barbell loaded up. And with that kind of loading, they found even greater gains in the bilateral lifts like you're talking about. And I think it's because kind of like this force profiling we've been discussing, it's hitting an area that's deficient that in a way, you know, helps that front end when you're already strong. And I think a lot of times people do bilateral lifts to support the other bilateral lifts. So you front squat, so you can be better at cleaning, sure. right? The challenge is most people in this country aren't professional lifters. So the end goal isn't cleaning. The end goal is, you know, healthy movement in a more explosive or loaded manner. And so does that, you know, does what you're doing actually enhance that or is, is it just enhancing the workout itself? Well, so, I mean, there, there's something to be said about, like, a little bit of periodization in it. Like, hey, once you got to the point where you're pretty strong in the bilateral movements, all of a sudden focusing on unilaterals, just like we Absolutely. see this all the time, people focus too early on the unilateral movements, yep. and they never develop that bilateral strength. And yet, and we, we've seen this a hundred times, and then they come back to it, and I'm like, 
honestly, as much as jiggy as you want to get on this unilateral, I think you just suck at squatting. And I think if you can get your <laughs> squat better, then everything else is going to look. It's, it's uh, I mean, but I spent, shit, 10 years of my life squatting before I ever did a single, single you know, unilateral type movement. And then we threw them in. And that was like this fucking revelation. And all game of a sudden the performance went. Yeah. It was a game changer for me. Yeah. And um, it just it just kind of goes back to this whole idea, man, that there's like a uh, cyclical almost, um, I guess, like a maturation process. There's this kind of this wave almost that, you know, as you get into one, you transition. And it's, if you don't catch it or you don't kind of get within it uh, or you don't follow the right steps. And I think that's really what we've athlete you know, life cycle. Yeah, baby. Man, it just it seems like it's becoming yeah. more and more clear. I read a study yesterday that talked about sarcopenia, which was uh, not taking off on a different deal, but muscle loss in older people. Why is this yeah. such an issue? And the guy ended up coming, figuring out that uh, as you age, your ability to process and use protein decreases. So you become inefficient at protein. So not us. We got the, we got uh, peptides for that. I know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we wish. Um, but as, so the idea is that as you age, you need to increase your, your protein intake. Uh, so like, you know, as, as people age, they think, oh, I need to, you know, they start naturally eating less, but actually they need to eat more protein. But we also know that their ability to process carbohydrate comes down. So I've always said, as people age more protein, less carb. You know, yep. you kind of get into this kind of deal. Yeah, and I remember my grandma eating like a piece of fucking turkey at Thanksgiving and then like pudding. And she was like, I'm full. Oh, I, I'm I like, Grammy, you got to get that fucking whey protein I, in. I just talked Let's to go. my mom today. Uh, I'd like my, my mom's been tracking her food and she's like, I've been eating uh, like, you know, 65 grams of protein a day. Oh, and I was Doors. like, I was like, mom, like that's <laughs> fucking embarrassing. And so she's like, I don't feel like cooking. And then she's like, so I was like having this come to Jesus moment with her. I'm like, you need to at least being eat, like eating 130 grams. So you got to double it. And she's like, yeah, oh. so wow, that's a good point. Yeah. Here, here I am lecturing my mom about not eating enough protein. I'm like, God damn it. The roles have reversed. <laughs> so, but I mean, uh, but like that, yeah. that would be an, and I'm sure you've seen this in, um, with the force plates. Cause you enter age sex. I mean, all the deal. And now right. you're starting to see like, I think it's fascinating just on the trends that you're pulling all this information that eventually yep. you get to the point where like these trends are like, this is what your training is like, you know, over the life cycle. And then you think about if you had an athlete over, let's say 10 years right. and being like, Hey, here you were at 26, here you are at 36. This is how it's changed. And to be able to almost chart it, like that's where things get really pretty exciting. I think. I mean, we have a major league baseball pitcher right now who's trained with us for, almost eight years and we have four state over those eight years and we're actually, you know, able to show them that chart and, and really dive into projections that can even help with contract negotiations. Wow. Right. So, you know, we're getting to that point where hopefully we're rewarding these guys that spend more time training and be able to project, you know, how long their career could be, you know, based on how much they've taken care of themselves. Yeah. With the um, you, you were bringing up some of like the uh, the Latin American baseball players, um, yeah. I, you know we, we've worked with a fair decent amount of baseball players, and uh, the yeah. one thing which is amazing is he's like these Latin guys come in like to like you know single A double A kind of early into the into the deal, and they're already like throwing like yeah. in the '90s, and he's like their skills are so high because they basically don't even go to school; they're just literally all they're doing is playing baseball yeah. all day. I mean, Absolutely. but he's like, but they have no, no knowledge of strength conditioning, nothing. And he goes, dude, most of them just burn out at such a young age, just from the amount of volume they're playing on the front end. And, and to your point earlier, those are the ones that don't need single leg training. We find a lot of times they'll come in with eccentric force, like in thirties. Right. Um, and so what ends up happening is we found the best way to boost that is actually quarter squats. 
heavy quarter squats, wow. right? So it's just under getting under more load, higher reps. So they get these huge volumes of short range of motion. And it's basically tightening up everything as much as you can. Then once they're four succeeds a certain level, then they'll go full range bilateral. And again, once the drive gets low, then they'll start switching to unilateral, that athlete life cycle, so to speak, you mentioned. Have you ever approached Todd Rice on uh, telling him that you programmed heavy quarter squats? <laughs> I haven't. Yeah, but I think it's all fine, right? You know, people would say, you know, quarter squats aren't effective. It's short range of motion. Right. It's like, well, it depends on the situation. And, right. and, and, and they've never read any... And and they've never read any. Yuri, Yuri Verkashansky wrote a, a ton of stuff where he called GPP a full squat. But then as athletes progress into their, you know, to the top of the peak into their SPP, that a quarter yeah. squat was more beneficial. Uh, I, uh, while that range of motion, I think, needs to get hit, I like to do it with uh, power movements of the Olympic lifts more so than like you know, uh, um, you know like yeah barbell quarter movements or yeah. i would much but rather do it that's in only heavy because rack pool. that's only because of instagram and quarter uh, squat gang. no it's because um <laughs> i'll tell you this right so when i went to uh we always squatted below parallel and we always squatted deep when i was in high school yeah. and squatted that way uh when i got to college and then i remember they uh, we were squatting in the weight room and the uh they made me go see the doctor and the doctor told me that squatting below parallel would adversely affect my knees and they didn't want me to do it anymore. So they wanted to set the squat, uh, the, uh, the safety bars high. So I couldn't go as deep. Yep. And I remember when they started doing it, I got terrible knee tendonitis. And then when I, I hurt my knee and uh, tear my patella or, uh, uh, tear my ACL. And then when rice came in, he was like, that is the fucking worst thing I've ever heard. You got to be fucking yeah. killed. And, and then that's when they booted all the doctors and the whole deal. And he was like, you know, you're going to squat in Oli shoes. And literally, like, from the time we got back into that training squatting below parallel in Oli shoes, all of a sudden my knee tendonitis was gone. And so, like, at that point, like, I was like, man, uh, that three years, like, completely fucked my knees. And I, you know, and, like, it's part of the mission with Power Athlete is I'm trying to, like, prevent people from the wrongs that fucking were done to me. And just yeah. shitty training and just bad information and this. I mean, we were throwing on knee wraps when I was like 14 years old, which fucking yeah. was terrible too. Uh, but yeah, man. I, and I, I think I, breaking down some of the preconceptions too, right? Of like, hey, quarter squats are bad or full squats are bad, right? It really depends on the situation. We, uh, we you know, they came across Viagra because they were treating blood pressure, right? And other things started to happen, right? They're like, holy shit, we got a new drug here, right? We started with ACL patients week one, week two, we started squatting them. But because they can't go full depth, we were doing quarter squats. And what we noticed is all their eccentric rates of force went up. Wow. We're like, holy shit, this isn't a rehab tool. This is anybody that comes in that needs eccentric force, right? So we kind of mm. stumbled on it very similar to the Viagra. Not as enjoyable, but, you know. Still <laughs> well, uh, who, yeah. who was telling me that Viagra uh, has some, like, weird uh, performance? Like uh, That's a vasodilator. Yeah. So your blood vessels open up. You know, and you get more blood flow, right? You know, which can provide um, more blood to certain areas. Yeah, some some more than others. So we're talking yeah. about some BFR on Viagra is probably the way we got to go. Oh, <laughs> so we're going to do blood flow restricted training and Viagra? With EMS on yeah. and uh, in a solar or a uh, UV light booth, right? Like and in, <laughs> nice. in cryo chamber. Uh, I'm in. Uh, I, you know what? Uh, ironically, I just read uh, some more research on what do they talk about? Growth hormone levels and muscle gain for uh, actually, I, what was it? it? Was it was like BFR and like muscle gain for like contrast bass? 
So, dude, uh, uh, when I came in the NFL, Sean Landetta was our punter, and he used to do this like whole ritual of like hot and cold contrast baths, and he and he had a whole like fucking idea behind it. And this is like '99, so I figure this dude played in the league for 23 years. I'll do it too. So, like. Yeah. Uh, at least twice a day, I would do 20 minutes of contrast. It was like three in the hot, two in the cold, three in the hot, two in the cold. Yep. And uh, I did it my whole NFL career. And so when I got out and then all these fun people started talking about these contrast baths and this hot training, this, and I'm like, we've been doing that shit since the fucking late nineties. I got that from Lendetta. And uh, yeah. it's just now that all the research is coming out that it's, I mean, a pretty, pretty amazing in terms of like the, you know, the ability to pack on muscle and size, being able to put your body through these kind of stressful situations. So, I mean, you yeah, know, I do, but, I do an hour and a half sauna routine with cold contrast every week, once a week, it's an hour and a half of like cold back, cold back. And it's like interval training in this intense heat. And it's how, how hot do you go in the heat? So the sauna goes about two sixty. <laughs> and are you, is that what you're in at? Two sixty. So, so how long at 260? So I'll go in for basically till I start sweating, come out, go in the cold tub. And then how, 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 how tall is, uh, how cold's the, the tub? 50. 50. Degrees. Okay. Yeah. So then I'll stop sweating, go back in for seven minutes, cold tub, 11 minutes, cold tub, 15 minutes, cold mm-hmm. tub. And so it's, yeah, this back and forth till I stop sweating, but it's like that plateau issue of, of body temperature and the growth hormone yeah. um, research behind it is massive. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, I dude, I literally just yesterday uh, was reading about it, but uh, they, they were testing people, I think up to 180. It's just being yeah. able to create a 180 degree environment, but a 260, fuck dude, I can't even imagine. How hot were we in CrossFit Creature? Do you remember? That was the most intense sauna session I've ever done. Cannot remember. Yeah, well, you fucking I, like he text yeah. bu- text busted out of this sauna. Like Dude, I can't take it anymore. My, just uh, fucking, I I got a sweater on. So. <laughs> I I have an infrared that gets to like one fifty, but like oh, I can really? yeah like I can sit in that infrared all day. That's not really. How do you like that? Cool. Yeah, um, or you could just stand yeah, in the sun uh, in your also backyard have an office that gets to one fifty. <laughs> uh, I did it like um, this is kind of strange, but I. Uh, um, <laughs> Uh, we had a house that had some mold in it and uh, there was like, uh, the doctor was like, Hey man, like get this uh, infrared sauna. It'll clear everything out. And so I used to go to the infrared sauna all the time, man. And I felt like phenomenal after it. And so for, yeah. for Christmas, I got my wife one. And so it sits out on there. And so I try to get in at least every day, but now I'm trying to figure out like, how do I get a cold tub? The problem is yeah. we're in Texas and it's fucking 110 degrees outside. So I'm like, so then I was looking at like, like where do you put one? Well, right. well, Matt Vincent and those guys were basically getting chest freezers and filling them up with water and then turning them down and then getting in the chest freezer. And I was like, <laughs> shit, I was like, that's actually pretty sharp. But I'm thinking to myself, yeah. I'm like, now I got to go on Craigslist and find a chest freezer. Oh, oh shoot. That sounds like yeah. something you're not qualified for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Scamming people <laughs> off of Craigslist, but it, it was pretty fascinating. They were getting like the big, like uh, 19 or 24 cubic foot chest freezers plugging them in and then filling them with water and then turning them down because yeah. it'll get down in the 30s and the 40s and that way you don't have to constantly be getting cool. ice and uh so uh, yeah I, I was like man that's uh that's a pretty good idea so absolutely uh, but uh the god 280 degrees i i don't think i've ever been no, anything that hot oh 260 yeah uh-huh. so i think yeah that's not my doing it's just where this this place that i go to nearby you know happens to keep it at so it wasn't right. like i asked for 260 i just yeah is it, yeah. is that through like the Wim Hof stuff or anything? Um, I got that that protocol actually through Joel Jameson. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, he's, he was talking about uh, this long sauna protocol, and then I was like, started looking online and kind of supported a lot of the Finnish studies and 
we live in an area here where there's actually a lot of Finnish people. So I actually asked our neighbor, I was like, come on, tell me about this whole sauna contrast thing. Is it a marketing ploy? He's like, everybody in Finland has at least one sauna in their house. Really? Some have two. You know, so- everybody has a dry one. Everybody has a smoke one. Um, oh, yeah. No. You know, and then when we're, we're contrasting that with, you know, snow and back to the sauna, he's like, the only thing that sucks about the U.S., is you can't drink beer in the public saunas because that's what we also do at the same time. <laughs> you know, uh, um, what Landetta told me, and I remember this uh, clear as day, he uh, he was part of like the New York, New York Athletic Club. You know, he was a, you know, played for the Giants for years. Yeah. And uh, he would go to this New York Athletic Club and there was all these old Jewish men that would go in there and they used to do this thing like they would get in this like super hot, like a uh, wet sauna. And he yeah. goes, they would sit in there and then they would get in this thing called a cold plunge, which was this like ice cold, like uh, just, you know, like obviously pool that was like sunk in the ground. And they would get in that cold plunge and they would go back and forth. And he yep. said that like uh, the Russian baths and like all these old like ascetic Jew guys, he goes, man, they swore by it. And he goes, they were always like, that was like their, like, this is what they did for their health. And Lundetta did it, man. And I remember seeing that guy and I was like, you know, like if you can play 23 years in the NFL, even as a punter, that's phenomenal. Yeah. I'll take this. And he had a yeah. pretty good story about them doing it to Lawrence Taylor at that point. I was like, fuck it, I'm in. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, like, I, I know, uh, like the Wim Hof stuff is pretty interesting. Um, I did a little digging around on that. And I think what's pretty fascinating with that stuff is, uh, they're constantly like trying to ramp up that fight or flight, which I think, uh, I don't necessarily know if I need any of that. Like, <laughs> right. I'm already fucking pretty aggressive. Like you don't need to put me in that fucking mode all the time of like all that breathing and trying to harness that shit. Uh, but I think some of the stuff in terms of like that contrast and building it, I think is, is one of those untapped things that we're going to figure out is going to be a, a, a big thing for longevity. I mean, it already is working on this idea of like mitochondrial density and trying to, right. you know, cause as we age, I mean, uh, Ken Ford just had uh, that doctor on the podcast who was like the foremost expert on like mitochondria basically like found it. And he's like, aging is just decreasing energy in the cells. If we can find a way to sustain that energy longer, you'll basically live forever. So that point i was like man we got to figure out this mitochondria thing yeah i think that's our next goal with the technology is going beyond just evaluating the workouts of of lifting or exercise and going into what you know let's evaluate the stimulus which could be a sauna which could be a cryo um could be a float tank instead of just looking at you know the lifts or the runs as a stimulus I did want to go back to you talked about this internal battle between technology being in the weight room and just the iron and hanging out with Jim Steele and a lot of these old school guys. I can't I want to know what your conversation was like with Jim Steele to convince him to get that force plate in the weight room and other old school coaches who have now found tech to be in training. Um, Yeah, I think. I think, well, Jim and I are are friends, uh, good friends. Um, And, you know, I think, you know, part of that is just really a shared um, intensity for life. Um, Make sure you ask Jim uh, about techs uh, and that the fact that he uh, locked Jim out of his office. So just just make sure you bring that up to him. Please don't. (laughs) (laughs) For a guy that has a tattoo of lifer on his forearm. Like, uh, yeah, it's not always like the best option. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Jim, you know, Jim and these guys that are really kind of this, this old school mode. And I mean that as a, as a sincere compliment of just training hard and aggressively. Personally, I don't call it old school. I call it the correct school, like the right way of training. Like I, the way yeah. people are like old school. I'm like, I don't know if that's old school or just the right way. And this other like yeah, new the, bullshit. the yeah. basics, the basics, the big rocks. You know, I think 
when they see technology that supports fundamentals and um, things that are known to work in a very increasingly distracted world, that's where it's been most effective. Um, is what all the what we're all searching for is some form of truth, and when it you know when it validates that like hey, what I'm doing and what I feel is working when I can see that through technology and data when I see that happening, you know then you know I'm really to engage in technology because it's going to change some of what I do maybe 20 percent but not all of what I do, um, and I think that's where technology is never going to replace individuals. It's just going to basically right the ship if it's a little bit off course every now and then. But Phil, does some of this technology present it the other story where it, I guess, does not validate what you're doing and it actually says, yeah. hey, dipshit, um, stop doing Absolutely. fucking 30 cleaning jerks for time three days a week, you know? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, we've lost we've lost clients, and, you know, as a result of that, you know, right. where um, but a lot of times those clients don't believe in gravity. So I, I don't know how much we can help them because, uh, you know, ultimately when you play your sport, you're under load, uh, most of that being vertical. And so if you're not doing things that stimulate that vertical plane, whether it's plyos or, um, you know, squatting and uh, et cetera, being the obvious one sprinting, uh, if you're not doing any of those loaded movements, your force profile is really not going to change that much. Um, the other philosophy that we tend to, uh, struggle with is if you're doing too much all the time, like the flexibility example we were talking about, you know, then you're going to have fatigue set in on the force. And if you're squatting five, six days a week, you know, you're not going to get better. You're going to get tired and you're going to get worse. And so that battle actually happens more, not with strength coaches or trainers, but with sport coaches. Uh-huh. Right. So we have seen, you know, a super negative compensation. Effect. Yeah. I mean, yeah it's, it's negative super compensation. Yeah, three to four hour practice and how it negatively affects force production. Guys are standing around or girls are standing around at practice. You know, that's a, that's a stress. Um, and so, yeah, we've seen it both ways. Um, people that aren't giving enough stimulus or people that are giving too much. And that's where the butting of heads tend to occur. Is, uh, is the effect systemic? Like, for example, like you're obviously testing it like on a force plate for the lower body. But what about the upper body? I mean, so if, our largest if, prediction is upper body Tommy John for baseball, but that Off can be jump. done through the jump, but there's absolutely. So this is where it's kind of, and we weren't <laughs> expecting that nor looking for it. You know, we got the data back from um, Stanford and BYU, these statistics teams that we work with. And they said, yeah, you guys can uh, predict, you know, Tommy John to a certain degree, uh, baseball players, when the eccentric rate of force is low. And we actually published this paper in, in a journal, peer-reviewed journal. And I, and I was blown away, but then I started to think about it. There is probably a reason why they screwed a big pitching rubber onto the mound, right? Because at the end of the day, you push against that and you throw with your legs. So trying to train, you know, your rotator cuffs with the size of your pinky, maybe two fingers, as opposed to these large load-bearing joints, right? That's where the real upside is. So if you can improve eccentric rate of force or the ability to start a motion with your legs, you take that pressure off the upper body to generate that torque. Yeah. Well, well like what about offense alignment? So I was thinking, what about well, I mean, no, but like uh, <laughs> it's something near and dear to my heart, but I think about like on the force plate, um, yep. you know, there was uh, 
playing offensive line, there's um, it's kind of an interesting deal. You either can punch like like the type of punch where you hit people and it fucking crumbles them, or you kind of like don't punch as hard. And that was always a big thing. Like certain guys had the ability to be able to like hit with like a, it felt like a ton of bricks where like they hit you and you're like, fuck, uh, I feel like you bruised my chest. And then there were other guys that were kind of soft in the punch. And there was like really just kind of a very interesting kind of distinction between guys. And that was kind of a, you know, it was a marker for, you know, uh, of just like admiration being like, Oh, that guy's a, he's a big punch guy, real strong, like real explosive, like real, you know, just strong within his hands. And I mm-hmm. wonder if like, uh, like, always trying to think of like um that was something that was you know you like not unique to me but something that i did very well but i would just i'm kind of just fascinated being able to say if you could look at like uh the force production within the um within the mats i mean with basically being able to to jump up and figure those pieces and why you know and then figure out okay hey all these guys are big punch guys and are pretty strong like why is it that these guys punch harder and can generate more force is there something unique to them within like the within the jump mats yeah, we've actually found linemen fall in two categories, and we call them punch and punch and ride. So the, the punch being like a ton of bricks, and the punch and ride being the guys that are more sustained, you know, with their um, their connection. And and we tend to f- see that those exterior guys, your tackles, tend to be more the punch and ride guys because they yeah. got to be able to control more space, where the interior guys have more punch force appearance. Now the punch force appearance is that really steep descending one. Like I'm generating force real quick. Yeah. Whereas the punch and ride guys, they generate force quick. They lose it, but then they regain it. And that allows them to basically respond to wherever the new force is. Yeah. So we see that both on the interior D line as well as exterior. Yeah. Interesting. Well, then then that settles it. Yeah. I mean, I think (laughs) at the end of the day, you know, people it's, it's, try to bucket things right into lower body, upper body. Right. But, um, as you guys probably know, some of the sorest upper body days you have are from deadlifting heavy well, you know, or squatting heavy. So it's a system approach. Yeah. Well, the other one too, is uh, a lot like the Tommy John reference you made, made a ton of sense. The guy, and I try to explain it to guys, they'd be like, well, how do you like, how do you punch in such that it's, it's a harder punch. And I'm like, uh, while I'm using my arms, um, you're just using your arms. I'm using everything like I can keep, yep. but I, I also could like, uh, keep my hips kind of unlocked and be able to like, uh, go from an unlocked position to almost like uh, a locked position and then yep. be able to re-bend to be able to move. Whereas a lot of guys, like once they shoot their load and they lock their hips, they couldn't get back into they a good position. Re-lock. I could yep. basically hit, like go from an unlocked to a locked to an unlocked on contact and be able to like be able to hold it for a split second for my punch and then be able to time it up and bend my knees and move in space. And yes. that was something I remember watching on film, my coach telling these young guys, like, don't do this. Because a lot of guys, once they get to that position, their feet stop moving. They're like, John can hit and then continue to move and rebend. And like, right. I just remember my coach being like, just telling the young guys, like, don't do it. You'll get cut. Like, that's not like that's something unique. Cause a lot of guys, there's unique skills that they have for me. Yeah. That was something I try to explain. I'm like, I'm just not using my arms. I'm actually using my whole body, my hips, like everything exploding into this. And your arms are just an extension of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the driver. And they were like, well, how, well, once you do that, how do you get back into position? I'm like, honestly, I can rebend and then get back to where I need to be. Uh, whereas you guys just shoot your load and are fucked. And, um, and I, but I I don't know how to teach you how to do that. So, I mean, that was just something unique to me. 
So I just, but I, and, and I don't know where that came from. I, I always put it towards the training we did when I was young with uh, Fred Hatfield and the compensatory acceleration. The base, yeah. Basically the idea of like m- trying to conti- always move the bar as fast as I could was kind yeah. of that idea. And um, that's where I kind of put it to, but it very well might be something else. Maybe I attributed it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, Phil, you, you guys don't actually manufacture the hardware. You guys are, you leverage the hardware and the input to start to create the insights based off of this data, right? Right. Yeah. We, we plug into um, a different piece of hardware from manufacturers and, and, and really we're not too particular about the type of hardware where we're really focused on is how do we get as much data as possible as yeah. often as possible. And that's where the software comes into play. Yeah. So um, I guess lead yeah. in right into the, that you, you guys are probably solicited all sorts of fucking technology to try to like yeah. to plug in and make use of. And I guess right. we we're, we're, I, it's kind of been a while. We've been fucking around with some wearable stuff and we're, are you asking for force plates? No, he has any extra laying around. Well, the, I mean, obviously I thought that was implied, but I was more so on, you know, we're, we're considering venturing into a wearable type of, uh, insight driven training, right? Whether yep. it's one of the rings, one of the watches, one of the wrist things, yeah. um, in your experience in, uh, you've had to have done some sort of research with this shit. I mean, they've had to have come to you guys. Well, I mean, um, somewhere yep. in a whoop, uh, you know, like, uh, one of the guys that followed across the football stuff for a number of years is actually out working with the guys from whoop and uh and then we just got approached by it's cora who's the rings and then somebody forwarded me something like sunto has a watch right and so yeah, like Garmin, I'm, I'm, fitbit all well, these guys uh, <sighs> and my, i guess my question for the you problem is, is 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 so like i think about this on like the data collection so think about like uh like the thickness of my wrist is obviously much different than let's say my wife who's wearing it. How is it that this thing can sense like uh you know because if you check pulses, certain people who are more muscular they their pulse is not easily as red as it is in certain places. Mm-hmm. So I mean this thing said yesterday I burned sixty five hundred calories. Right. I'm like, there's no fucking way I burned 65, or maybe I did. Who knows? But I, that's I don't a lot have, of air squats. <laughs> I don't have any way to control it. So I think what it goes back to is. You're only as good as your data collection and the device that's doing it. And I, and I think what's interesting is that you're, the software is using multiple, because I'm sure more than a few people sure, produce. But I guess when I look force at that, plates, right? Sorry, go ahead, Phil. Yeah, yeah. Um, more, more, there's others that produce force plates. I think where most of our patents are around isn't around the force plates. It's actually um, how that data is collected in a reliable, repeatable, standardized way. Because... And most people are like, oh, that's smart. You can build a big database. When I filed for those patents, I wasn't thinking like that. I was thinking from a coach standpoint where if an athlete sees a number that is not accurate, like Fitbit seeing or uh, Whoop saying I burned 6,500 calories, a lot of times that after the coach is done. That's Lose it. faith that in thing the product. Sucks. Yep. The, the margin for error in sports with technology is so slim yep. that – your information better be reliable and accurate. Otherwise you're out and you might not ever get a second chance. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I thought about the reliability of the collection process, that was really what I was thinking about is the interaction of the individual. Um, And that's where most wearables really struggle. It's not on the cool interface, the app, the marketing, how the device looks. It's just bad data. And there's a saying of garbage in, garbage out. Uh There's no software in the world that can make bad data good. It just can't happen, you know, and so making sure the data coming in is good, even if it's less of it. Um, that's really, I think, where a lot of the focus needs to be. I guess in my mind, it's also 
and maybe, you know, I guess it makes it better, not best, but as long as it, even if it's not good, if it's consistent over a longitudinal analysis, then you can still see directionally improvement or not. Right. But like having an outlier, like I'm with you, John, 65,000 is a bit above average Uh, or 6,500. But if you can leverage these tools to create an insight and like, okay, on a, but if you're using it at like an hour by hour, tick, tick, tick and like really trying to scan i don't know that it'd be the best but um i don't know if you can say without like you know endorsing something but what did you what have you found some of these consumer type wearables uh, what, what provided the most useful insight and i guess consistent data is there can you jump into that yeah um you know i think uh yeah we that's been a, actually a pretty big struggle uh for us to try to find those things um because you've got the, is it reliable? And then is it practical? Practical. You know, I think we found Omega Wave is, is actually pretty uh, reliable, if not one of the most reliable but systems that are cost out there. prohibitive. Right. Cost prohibitive. And then the other aspect is, you know, getting people in a dark room to relax, you know, at least from a team standpoint, somebody's like, well, we have a dark room, you know, at our baseball park. It's like, yeah, but you had coffee and then you threw in a chew on the way to the park. Then you showed up, got in the dark room and out you know, well, so I, I remember when they yeah. approached me and then they sent me they were like hey yeah i was like sounds amazing uh and then they sent me the link and it was like ten thousand dollars and i'm like um i don't know if i can justify spending 10 grand for this for myself now if it's a major league team but i also mm-hmm. told those guys i was like hey man like i think uh um if you you like and phil you you probably understand this better than anybody if you test like if you were to design training programs based off of the best athletes in the world those training programs would be uh, for the best athletes for the, the best athletes in the world. <laughs> and uh, like, I mean, that, like, that's yeah. the hard part. It's like all, all, all these people right. are always like, Oh, I worked with this one guy in this. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to know about your successes, man. I want to know about the dude that nobody wanted or like, you right. know, the guy that you were able to, you know, this guy had no chance and I built him into here. I'm like, the problem is, is that, uh, well, you know, it doesn't Scott. matter what you do. The best athletes in the world are probably going to be the best athletes in the world. And yep. so like that, that's the huge problem I have with a lot of these training programs. It's like, oh, you know, this is what, uh, you know, Tom Brady was using in this. And I'm like, well, I just saw a picture of him and he ain't looking that good. So I'm guessing that soy diet ain't helping him. But like, <laughs> if you think about like LeBron James, even if he did nothing but hammer strength, uh, would still be LeBron James. So it's like, right. that's what, what about know. Scott Fujita, right? Cal, yeah. Cal bear. Did you work with him, Phil? Yes. I work with Scott. Yeah. Great, great individual. Yeah. yeah. Uh, food showed up as a walk on. Yeah, and, um, yeah, you know, and fucking crushed it, you know. Yeah, I think just that mentality, right, of of having, you know, a really strong goal, and no one not and no injury was going to deter him uh, from achieving that. Just super driven, super focused. Um, but I think from a wearable or what techs out there, I think whatever's cons- I don't really have, I guess, a few names. I'm not being coy off the top of my head. Um, I just think whatever's going to allow you to be consistent. Um, with your training. And a lot of that has to do is, is the system reliable? We're trying to encourage a lot of our athletes or teams to get more engaged in recovery. Yeah. Uh, Cal Dietz is a huge mega, mega wave guy. I mean, he's, you know, he, he's told me, I mean, every time I see him, he's always like, do you have a mega wave yet? I'm like, no, we don't have one yet. He's like, Oh, you got to get one. He's like the amount of information that he's like, we've been able to glean out of it is, is unbelievable. So maybe some point, but yeah, no, I mean, we definitely love to test it if we ever get the opportunity. But uh, I, I think on the um, 
on the recovery side, like uh, people always kind of think of this kind of idea of recovery as like a physical thing. And uh, it seems like a lot of the information, a lot of the stuff I'm reading as of late is kind of like, um, you know, recovery, like as little as like, you know, 15 minutes listening to like something like Budify. And now they have a yep. lot of this stuff kind of coming in in terms of like meditation and just being able to kind of calm because we have so much, you know, like you think about like the phone and the technology and so many inputs at the ability to like unplug and just, you know, take 15 minutes yep. to, to, to just chill out or, you know, meditate or do whatever you're doing is just paying massive dividends. And I think it just comes from the fact that we're constantly fucking plugged in. Like there's yep. never, you know, we're using apps to track our meals and this, I mean, there's like a million different things we're doing and it's like, how about just go sitting outside and listening to the wind blow a little bit for 15 minutes, probably will do more than anything more so than trying to, you know, figure out how to do the next recovery, you know, uh, panacea, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, um, in our release in our work with the special forces, they turned us onto that float tank, sensory deprivation tank, and the ability to kind of eliminate any of the mental um, distractions for a long period of time like that is, you know, I feel the, the largest part of that value. And I think that's also going to be on the forefront of some of the concussion, um, you know, healing opportunities, because again, that same reason of blocking out all of those um, inputs that are coming in. Dude, my my cheap man, my poor man's float tank in terms of sensory deprivation is any Fast and Furious movie. You just sit there. I thought you were gonna say uh, you get drunk and like put on like a no that like, turns me that turns like me into a pl- like, like a uh, what, what do you call it? like the cellophane mask from uh, from like the grocery store. I usually get hammered and then I just put like a uh, plastic mask uh, around my. No, eyes. you flip on, turn the lights off, put on some fast, you know, uh, Tokyo Drift, and you're just I, like nothing else. You, like you can't even process anything. I firmly believe, and I've um, you know. Uh, the CT and the concussion stuff is pretty near and dear to my heart, uh, obviously. Yeah. But like, I really believe that uh, our brains are extremely elastic and can heal itself. If you provide the proper opportunity, like, um, you know, if you can reduce inflammation in the body and, uh, you know, when I went and I got tested, the damage to me wasn't nearly as severe as other guys. And I think it comes from some of the diet stuff that I did pretty early on in my NFL career. Like I, ate, you know, basically a cyclical ketogenic diet for most of my NFL career. And I think yeah. that was helpful. Um, just, uh, you know, the supplements like working with Dr. Tom and the guys we work at Cosenta, uh, you know, basically getting my blood work done twice a year and being able to supplement all that for most of my NFL career. So I think just being able to do those little things. And then on top of it, uh, avoiding painkillers. Um, that's another big yeah. one, which nobody seems to admit, but I just, there was an interesting correlation and I know correlation isn't necessarily causation, but the guys that seem to take the most amount of painkillers are the guys that I've seen today have the most problems. So I remember I talked to Peter Atia about that and he made an interesting point. He goes either uh, it could be the fact that those guys just didn't deal with pain the same way. So maybe their brains were a little bit different or their receptors in such a way that their pain was greater. So they needed more painkillers because there was more damage or the fact that maybe the painkillers were reducing healing, which we know is the effect. Um, so there's just, I think as it gets into it, I mean, I saw Jeremy Newberry sing about Tordal, uh, you know, being another one, but yeah, I mean, if you're shot up on Tordal, basically you don't feel anything. So yeah, now like if you have an injury, you can go out and hammer it harder. So I think there's some really pretty fascinating, uh, stuff. I mean, we work with doc Parsley, um, who's big on sleep, who's one of the seal docs and he talks yeah. about, you know, uh, you know, re- reduction of growth hormone and, you know, androgens and shitty sleep is being a huge, you know, cause and uh, driving factor for a lot of the brain stuff that a lot of the special forces guys have. I mean, I think it's uh, everybody keeps looking for this one thing 
and it's not. It's this com- it's a cumulative effect. It's like yeah. painkillers, this mm-hmm. you know, injury, head trauma here, not doing this. I mean, it's, I think it's a culmination of everything. And I think mm-hmm. if you can go through and just kind of like limit these factors little by little, I think you end up giving yourself a better opportunity John, to survive. Going back to the pain thing, what was pretty interesting? Two fifty one episode two fifty one. Adrian Lowe, and he talked about pain perception and the the like biological, physiological, yeah. and psychological network that affects pain where uh, people are more prone to go to like painkillers or alternative treatments and shit. And that is just, it's very psychological and social actually how pain can affect you. So uh, for our listeners, 251 Adrian Lowe. Well, what's funny for me, and you guys have heard me say all this, um, the pain for me was a receipt for the hard work. And like, I knew I did my job. So like, whereas other people were so quick to try to mask it and like, Oh, this pain, I got to get rid of it. I need this painkiller. I was like, yeah, badge of honor, baby. I was like, fucking enjoy it. I'm, I'm, I'm like, dude, like I looked at pain as like this receipt for hard work and like I did my job and like it was like, yeah, like a, uh, you know, something to pin them being like, it fucking hurts. Like my hands are fucked up, but that was just because I punched the shit out of this dude or I hit this guy or these yeah. things. And I just always kind of thought about it like these are the receipts for the job I did. And yeah. I just kind of like made peace with it and was okay with it and uh, just didn't run from it. And I always thought that the guys that were constantly running from the pain, um, I just, I was like, yo man, you gotta like, you gotta make friends with it. It's gotta become like part of your fucking ally within this whole fight. And if you don't make, if you don't make friends with it, it's going to fucking eat you up and you're going to like kill yourself with all that shit, you know? Cause guys just slamming drinks and trying to like fucking numb the pain. I'm like, dude, enjoy it because one day it's not going to hurt like this anymore. I had a buddy yeah. back home. He was a pretty prolific bouncer. Uh, he used to say pain don't hurt. His name's Dalton. Oh, yeah, he used to work at the Double Douche. Yeah, he did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, uh, like, that's... uh, Yeah, the reframing of it all, what pain is, and, and, yeah. And, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, like anything in life, like, it's expectations. Like, you go out on the field and you you hit people on the expectation that, you know, you're in pain, you need to get rid of it, is is more of a perception and expectation issue of, you know, what happens when you play hard and you play a violent game. I remember uh, we were getting ready. To, it was towards the end of the year, and I remember um, I was in Philly, and I'd like it bruised my hands like really bad. It was cold the day we played, and I remember that that uh, game that Sunday. I was going into it. I remember I couldn't necessarily like make full fists. Like my hands were still swollen and hurting. And I remember I said to the doc, "I'm like, man, I just can't make these fists." And he was like, "I got something for you." And he gave me a Toradol shot. And I remember it was the first time I took Toradol, and I remember like ten minutes later all of a sudden my hands didn't hurt and they weren't swollen and I could make fists. And I remember thinking like, Oh fucking somebody's in trouble. I'm going to wear this. I'm going to, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to wear this motherfucker out. And I did. I remember when I wore that dude out and then like two days later I woke up and I was like, Oh God, my hands hurt so fucking bad. And then it's (laughs) like, and and then, and then all I was thinking is I just got to make it to Sunday so I can get another one of those Toradol shots. And, uh, like that. And then I remember the next year, uh, like, you know, early in the year, like I saw guys going and getting Toradol shots and like, uh, the doc's like, you want a Toradol shot? I'm like, no, I'm going to save that to the very fucking end when I really need yeah. it. You fucking assholes getting Toradol shots in preseason. Horrible yeah. fucking move. Give me that yeah. shit in December. Yeah. So no, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, like that's some good stuff. No, man, it's, uh, um, no, it, it's it, it's fascinating shit, man. Like the, I, I think anytime you can collect information and then empower people to make a difference, uh, I, I think it's great. Um, I'm 
I kind of dig the wearable stuff just because I think it, it, it forces some accountability towards people. Yep. Just like, um, like my fitness pal, like being able to track your macros, like we're doing like a little bit of a challenge and, uh, yeah. you know, getting guys in and being like, Hey, I want to see your, my fitness pal. I want to see what you're eating. I want to see what you're doing. And I want to know that you're logging it. Cause if you're logging it, I know that you're actually mm-hmm. fucking eating the food, which it, is a perfect yeah, example of, uh, which is a perfect example of that shit is not accurate. You know what I mean? Like you, it's right. directionally accurate, yeah. but it, so that allows you to just create a trend and accountability uh, yep. to put you in a better place and build some insight to what you previously were doing, which is fucking uh, 800 calories until 5 p.m. And then, then 2,000 calories from 5 to 9, yeah. right? And then just crushing it, not being consistent. Uh, then all of a sudden, like, tracking your workouts and this and being able to just, like you said, man, like, it doesn't, like, everybody's looking for this laser-like accuracy. And I think mm-hmm. all we're looking for is just a kind of a bigger corral. Like, I just... I don't need to know where on the field you are. I just need to know that you're on the field. And I think some of the wearable stuff allows for it. Like, do I really think I burned 6,500 calories yesterday? Uh, No. And, but I'll tell you this, like, I think it's an interesting number. And then when you look at these trends, like the one that I'm, the the one trend I'm really fascinated by is, um, and this is just purely for me is uh, salt. So uh, Rob Wolf and I got stuck on this whole kind of like salt myths, salt debate. And so I've been trying to figure out like, how much salt does somebody really need? And if you can like cut your salt back and then add salt, can you change recovery? And my heart rate variability uh, numbers are like from the difference between like going low salt up until like seven, eight, nine, ten grams is like night and day. Now, is it true that the best type of salt is the salt on like those microwavable soft pretzels? <laughs> and then if you cheese up the salt, it helps. Have, have you ever been to Philly? Uh, yeah. Uh, in, in the oh, airport, yeah. In, in, in the airport, they sell these fucking pretzels that are oh, the best God. fucking pretzels. And people like it, like it's famous. Like the Sounds Philly like a pretzel. performance yeah. tool. But it, uh, it, like just, just being able to, you know, because I, I remember talking to Joel years ago and him sending all the heart rate variability stuff. Yeah. And so I tried everything I would, uh, could to try to fucking cheat it. Like, like how I could cheat the heart rate variability. I found that a 15 to 20 minute walk at night before bed, regardless what I did for my training, put me in the green. It was, it was like the craziest shit. And I remember talking to him and he's like, maybe he goes, that is just your mechanism for allowing you to get into a deeper sleep. And he's like, which is, he goes, cause you know, we know shitty sleep fucks with heart rate variability. So like I, I've been testing this one with the whoop thing and also the heart rate variability that uh, as my salt, inc- my salt intake increased, which is just basically electrolyte balance, all of a sudden my heart rate variability went up. And um, Are you so, taking the salt at night? No, uh, I've been doing uh, in the morning. Uh, I'll yeah. take like a, uh, like a fourth of a teaspoon in the, and I'll do that probably uh, six to seven times. So I'll just kind of like mix up like um, some water with some lime and then I throw like a, a fourth of a teaspoon of uh, sea salt in there and like I'll kind of mix up the salts and I kind of yeah. play with it a little bit and I was just kind of charting the amount of salt and it's almost like and then I would do like no salt and I'd see the heart rate variability fall. I'd add the salt back and it would go back up and I'm like, fuck, this isn't on accident. Uh, I did it when I was a training day. I didn't do it when it was a non-training day. And so I've been trying to play with it and change all the variables. And for some reason, the more salt intake that I make, yeah, there you go. So I'm you doing the same thing. Right? Found the, the same thing. So yeah. the more the, the uh, when I punched it up from like six, seven, eight grams up to nine and ten, all of a sudden my heart rate variability went up. Uh, when I woke up in the morning, I wasn't tired. Um, uh, like it just, it, it's it's added a kind of an interesting thing that I'm like, I can't like, could it be this fucking simple? 
that like uh that you know i mean if you read the salt myth and when i was really getting into with robbie's like it just fucking makes sense that if you don't have proper electrolytes and the amount of salt in your system he goes nothing fucking works if you basically put somebody on a no salt and you don't give them any they fucking die your you know your chance of more you know mortality is 100 percent. it's your survival is zero and he goes you know like we think about like all of the uh uh, low salt diet recommendations and then all of a sudden you're seeing these guys go low salt and like the heart problems and this he goes i think there's some really interesting things associated with it so i just tested it purely from performance and um i think you guys are fucked man i think i'm gonna crush y'all just barely just add some salt in (laughs) and we got to find a two i'm still fascinated dude 260 degrees in a fucking sauna is that a wet sauna or a dry sauna No, it's dry sauna oh my god yeah, it's, is, it's, it's are, rough. Is it like a religious experience? Like I, I always imagine those yeah, like that that third or fourth round becomes a little bit, uh, you know, <laughs> a little bit out there. Like, yeah, yeah, so, I, I gotta, I'm staring at that clock. I've got the, you know, the timer right there. I'm like, is it seven minutes yet? Is it seven? Is it 10? You know, yeah, it's yeah. been 11 seconds. We, Shit. Yeah. <laughs> we got six and a half to go. We That's had right. a workout years ago that was called religion and we called it religion because as we were doing the workout, I thought somebody was tapping me on the shoulder. And yeah. I was like, I was like, who's fucking tapping me? And they're like, dude, we were doing our squats. Nobody was tapping you. I was like, must have been Jesus trying to work in on the set. So we ended up calling <laughs> yeah. the workout religion because I swear to God, Jesus was trying to fucking get, get the bar off my back. And like, yeah. it's like that kind of thing where you're just kind of like locked within it. And uh, if you go read any of this, like the sweat lodge, any of the religious experience through like the, na- like the Native Americans being in those sweat lodges, like that's like 250, 300 degrees, like weird shit happens. Yeah. I think we can build that in the back. Uh, it's hot enough here in Texas that I think we could do anything. Like uh, box, yeah. Well, I mean, we, you know, we we were in Newport Beach, and then we moved here to Austin. And um, as much as I love Texas and Austin, I'm kind of missing Newport Beach. And then my mom hit me up. She's like, "Oh, it's like 100 degrees here in California." I'm like, "Well, fucking, the Earth's getting hot." How about this, John? We just build a, a steel box, put it in the field, paint it black, and see how hot that gets throughout the day. I think that could be our fucking we'll, 200 degree sauna. Well, we could get, test, and then we could yeah. get Phil to come over and he'll, you know, he knows what 260 <laughs> yeah. feels like. What's it feel like? He's like, 280, get out. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that uh, Cool Hand Luke? Did yeah, that's what I was going to say, that Cool yeah. Hand Luke box. Yeah, yeah you're, exactly. you're, Luke's over here eating 40 eggs. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I think it was like 50, oh. wasn't it? Was it, it was 50 eggs. Either way, that was... <laughs> noop, 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 noop. Oh, one of my favorite movies. But Phil, hey man, thanks for sitting around dude. and chatting with us dude it was great it's awesome great. to hear you and john catch up and uh i guess you know probably 20 percent of our listeners are are in that strength and conditioning sphere so they have like the commercial side of it and where should they go to peek out whatever sparta is looking at yeah we've got a uh, spartascience.com is our okay. website and, and there's a good blog on there a range of things from yeah nutrition to training to awesome uh, mentality approach things yeah and then even for, let's say, our folks who train at home or just like kind of consumers, individuals, same spot? Yeah, same spot. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, we look at everybody as, as uh, you know, people that want to improve themselves physically. Cool. Yeah. Sparta science, man. Well, and then also this goes into the fact that uh, everybody's just one degree of separation. They're like, oh, and he's like, hey, and here we know each other. Yeah, exactly. This is the hilarious part about the podcast. I'll have these people on and be like, you remember we went to dinner? I'll be like, holy shit, I do fucking remember that. So it's always <laughs> funny. It was great to reconnect, man. I'm really uh, glad and I'm always interested when I meet another person that had the same experience with Todd Rice as I do. <laughs> And uh, if Todd's listening to this, which I know he's not, if I can go fuck yourself. <laughs> and if you talk to him, tell him, welcome to him to go fuck himself. <laughs> I will, yeah. And uh, yeah, Thank he still guys. has my number, too. I haven't changed my number either. So if he sends it to I'll fly out there and fucking beat his ass. 
it, uh, he, he's not working in uh, professional sports, is he? he? He's doing a private gig I don't now? think so. Yeah, I don't know what he's doing. Yeah, I haven't talked to him. I'm not sure where he's at. <laughs> little Stockholm Syndrome. I appreciate yeah, it, man. Can, yeah, you can give him the box. Oh, dude. I, I, Put him in the box. I'll, That's right. It's fucking uh, in. I, I got some the metal out there. Out there? <laughs> Click. <laughs> yeah, when you get out, I got these 50 eggs to eat. Yeah. Uh, dude. All right, we'll power out the nation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Until next time. Bye. All right. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Follow Sparta Science on Instagram or their website, spartascience.com, and learn how you can demo the technology discussed in this episode. And now for another installment of why you should attend the Power Athlete Symposium 2018 in Austin, Texas. The practicals. You have the opportunity to be coached in real time by one of the best coaches I've ever had the opportunity or honor of training with, and that is Tex slash Chris McWilkin. If you think he sounds like he knows what the fuck he's talking about on the podcast, wait till he gets a hold of you in the gym. It's a rare opportunity to glance into the brilliant mind of a dedicated educator. And anything he lacks in knowledge, he more than makes up for in body hair. So he's got that going for him. Until next time, 